this week on Myths and Legends, we're back in the Irish legends with the wooing of Etain. You'll see that true love means being able to recognize your spouse when they get turned into a fly, and that if you leave on a business trip and come back with a tan and impossibly jacked leg muscles, congrats, you've been walking for nine months straight. The creature this week is a blanket that eats you, unless you're dressed in cactuses. This is Myths and Legends, episode 200, The Things We Do for Love. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you might think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week we are back in Irish folklore. This is the same world as the Toyn, way back from, I don't know, 2016 I think? Um, but it's largely a standalone episode. We'll mention the same areas, because it's all set in Ireland, but it's basically a new set of characters. And so we'll just jump right in, with a king, a queen, and the very good-looking god, who is the reason why the queen wants the king to leave. Boan helped her husband, Elkmar, get ready to go. Was he, was he ready to go yet? He was leaving today, right? Like, like right now, right? Immediately behind the king, a supremely attractive druid entered the room, saw that the king was still there, and didn't stop walking as he turned around and left. The king said that it was just a quick trip down the road to see another king. She didn't need to pack him dinner. He'd be back tomorrow. She said, yep, absolutely. Um, also drink this. He looked at the goblet. Why? She said he knew she was a river goddess, right? Well, if he drank that before he left, he wouldn't come to any harm during his trip and would just feel super great the whole time. So he drank it, sure. All right, bye, honey. The Drew was back in Boan's bedroom before King Elkmar was even out of the kingdom. The queen, she was hedging her bets. Her special friend, the Dagda, as he's called, wasn't just a druid with an improbable six-pack. He was a god king, and since he was associated with fertility, manliness, and strength, among other things, she thought that she might not need the nine months of her husband's absence, but she was probably going to use them. And use them they did. Since the Dagda was the god of fertility, well, Boan was pregnant within the week. Meanwhile, her husband was still walking. That drink he swigged right before he left made it so he didn't notice darkness. He didn't get tired or hungry and didn't notice the time pass. He made it to his friend's castle that was about three hours down the road in a few months and in a few more months returned home. In that time, Boand and the Dagda started their affair, got in a fight, broke up, got back together, had a child together, and then decided to just be friends. The Dagda said he should go home anyway. His wife the Phantom Queen of Death, the Morrigan, was probably wondering where he was. The kid was safely shuffled away to foster in a house of another king, and Elkmar returned home with a great tan and extremely jacked leg muscles from all that walking, but otherwise he was none the wiser. The kid, named Angus, grew up in the care of Mir, who was technically Angus's half-brother, because the god of fertility, manliness, and strength, I guess couldn't not make friends everywhere he went. Oh, and in some translations, Mir is also from the Fairylands, 
this mystical other world in Celtic folklore. It doesn't really matter right now, but it will matter a lot later. But the world was too small for Angus to remain hidden away forever. For the longest time, he thought Mir was his dad, until one day, when a boy laughed at him for not having parents, he thought about it and confronted his foster father, who told him that he was the son of a queen and a god. And he had been hidden away because, well, exactly that. He was the son of a queen and a god, and her husband might not be thrilled about that. Angus, the kid, didn't care. He wanted to confront his father, the king. He wanted his birthright. Mir nodded. Well, sure, but he couldn't just walk in there and say he was the offspring of the queen's affair. He had to be more delicate. Here's what they were going to do. You see, it was almost sound. The time around Halloween. And there was a big feast, and that was the time when the barriers between the worlds became thin, and beings could pass between them. And in this kingdom at this time, it was decreed that it was a time where no one would have weapons on them. It was a time of peace and hope. If you didn't know, a system built on traditions and norms is susceptible to a shameless person who just openly defies traditions and norms. So all Angus had to do was show up to the party and put a sword to the king's neck. Elkmar put his hands up. All right, all right, what did the kid want? Angus narrowed his eyes. He wanted Elkmar's kingdom for one day. Elkmar lowered his hands. Yeah, okay, sure. And it really was that easy. The next morning, Angus was crowned king, and Elkmar decreed that everyone should follow him. The problem with putting someone else in the position of power was that someone else was in the position of power. When Elkmar returned, Angus said, yeah, it was his by both birthright and, I guess now, conquest. He was going to stick around. Someone has probably had a worse day when Elkmar found out that both his wife had cheated on him for months on end while sending him walking through the wilderness and that she had a child with a literal god that she had been with. And now that child was deposing him, and everyone thought he was both a cuckold and a coward for valuing his own life over the kingdom he ruled. Also, his fantastic tan and calves that he got from all that walking were now just a painful reminder of all that he had lost. Elkmar left his kingdom, and he left our story. But Mir, though, he wanted to see how his boy Angus was doing. The kid left for Elkmar's kingdom, and he never heard another word. So he decided to travel and see how his foster son fared, conquering his very first kingdom. They grow up so fast. He did well, as we know, but Mir didn't. Because, as he was walking in, he saw some boys fighting in the field. Having just finished raising a supernatural child, he knew that he was the one to break up this fight. He put on his dad voice and walked out into the field. To Mir's credit, he did smooth out whatever issues were going on between the boys. Because, seeing this nerd telling them to quiet down and stop fighting, they put aside their differences to stab Mir in the eye with a holly branch. It took a supernatural doctor to repair Mir's eye, but it would take more than that to salve his hurt feelings. Mir said that him wanting to go yell at some kids on Angus's lawn was obviously Angus's fault so Angus needed to make it right. Angus said, sure. He didn't know about that, but whatever. Mir had raised him. What did he want? Turns out he wanted a chariot, so a new car, a new set of clothes, and the most beautiful woman in all of Ireland. Angus blinked. I mean, yeah, he could do the first two pretty easily. He was a rich king now, 
the third one was a human being. I mean, that's really weird, but sure, I can see if I can set you guys up. She lives in Ulith, a kingdom in the northeast of Ireland. Mir said he he knew where Ulath was. Angus shrugged. Uh, sure, though, he he would see. He would go to Ulith. Buy her from me, King Aleel demanded of Angus. What? You heard me. Buy her from me. His family isn't prestigious enough to marry my daughter, who I love so much, that I'm selling, King Aleel explained. Angus sighed. Uh, okay, he really wasn't cool with this line of conversation, but what would he need to do in order to buy the man's daughter for his foster dad half-brother? A lot, it would seem. The king would need 12 fields and deserts cleared, and the land made arable, 12 great rivers diverted toward the sea, and the girl's weight in gold and silver. Even though Angus was part god, he knew better than to mess with these impossible tasks. For the first two, he went to his mom, the queen, Moand, who just did them all for him, taking a night each. The actual money part of the demands were super easy. He had the cash on hand, and after an awkward session, where the girl was weighed in the throne room, so her dad could determine the price at which she would sell to a man he thought unworthy enough to give her to, Etain, the fairest, kindest, gentlest woman in all of Ireland, was sold to Angus to marry Mir. Wow! Shimmering fire gold hair, cheeks as red as foxgloves, shape as wavy as sea foam, Mir said, bending down to kiss his new wife's hand. You must be Etain. Etain blushed. Oh, oh, you. Wasn't he a charmer, comparing her to sea foam? The pair laughed, talked, and grew to enjoy each other's company. At the end of the night, they were wed. The next morning, Mir turned to his kingly ward from his new chariot, wearing his new suit, saying that he should come to visit and get his eye poked out more often. Angus chuckled, yeah, but please don't. Um, also... Maybe he was out of line in asking this, but what would Fomnak think of all this? Mir turned, sorry, he was lost in Etain's impossibly blue eyes. Who? Fomnak, your wife. Did Mir stop to think how she might have an opinion about Etain? Mir sat back and looked at the sky. Oh, yeah, her. It was probably okay. She was cool. They would all be good. We'll be fine. Angus remarked that she was like a very powerful witch. And he just left a few months back. And now he was returning with the most beautiful human woman in the world. This might go badly. Mir rolled his eyes. Please, it's the 90s, man. And by that, he meant, you know, the 90s in the first century. If loving a dangerous witch and then surprising her with a second, more beautiful woman was wrong, he didn't want to be right, he said as he looked deeply into Etain's eyes. That's, that's what I was saying. It's probably wrong, and there are going to be consequences, Angus yelled. But Miter simply waved at his foster son and took off back home. 
don't know, honey, Etain said a few weeks later. I really think she doesn't like me. Mir dismissed her. That was all Etain's imagination. Etain snuggled in close. Well, Flomnak was always glaring at them. Miter shrugged. That was just her resting witch face. Okay, well, what about the time I walked into her shrieking and stabbing the pillows next to you, thinking it was me? Etain asked. Mir said that Flomnak just had this, like, random sense of humor. Really, you guys just need to spend more time together. You'll really hit it off, I promise. You guys should have dinner together tomorrow night, just the two of you. It'll be great, I promise. It wasn't great. It was made even worse by Mir pushing Flomnak aside and sitting Etain down in the seat of honor at the head of the table, what was usually Flomnak's seat, and then telling his ladies to have fun. He'd be back later. See, look, Flomnak was in the spirit already with that smile, which was surprisingly sinister and devious looking for a happy smile. Well, have fun, he'll be back. He shut the door on the two women and went to go have a dinner of his own. Returning later that night, he found Flomnak sitting outside, clothes dripping, and the servants wringing out the tapestries in the hallway. Flomnak said that his guest mansion flooded. Can he believe that? Mir looked at the house, bone dry on the outside with no plumbing or running water of any kind, so kind of no, you couldn't believe it. Hey, where was Etain? Flomnak shrugged. Who's to say? She took off when the flooding started. Said something about hating you and leaving town forever. Wonder what that could have meant. Mir said, yeah, well, he would go off looking for her. As for the house, they had enough. Let's just, like, leave it. Fomnak said, oh, one more thing. I'm leaving you. Mir was perplexed. What? Why? Fomnak answered him with an eye roll, whistled for her chariot, and went to go live with her parents. Mir cared, but not as much as he did about Etain. He took off after her, into the night. Maybe I'm missing something. Maybe the manuscripts that are, quote, horribly mangled and incomplete are horribly mangled and incomplete, but it's said that they just left the flooded house with the fireplace still burning inside. In fact, the heat of the flames and the air worked together so that the water, which was definitely one of those spontaneous, unexplainable floods that happened, and not the transmogrified form of Etain, after Mir left her alone with his vengeful witch other wife, the water on the inside evaporated, and when it was gone, only a singular worm was left. Once again, chalking this up to an iffy translation in manuscript, the heat turned the worm into a fly, and not just any fly. This one was scarlet, and quote, the size of the head of the handsomest man in the land. The sound of the fly's voice, and beating of its wings was sweeter than pips and harps and horns. After weeks of searching, Mir feared the worst. He was worried that his love wasn't ever going to return, and then he met the fly, the size of a handsome man's head. The fly wouldn't leave him alone, and even though he tried to shoo it away, eventually he realized that maybe his wife, who was a witch and hated Etain, might have turned her into a fly the size of a handsome man's head. Probably didn't make the logical leap from puddle to worm to fly the size of a handsome man's head, but then again, it's not all that logical of a leap to begin with. Anyway, she stayed with him, and he would fall asleep to her buzz, and she would wake him if someone came near to him who did not love him. So that's how, one morning, he woke up to a fly smashing herself into his head. It was Fomnak. 
she had returned. She had come with a few others, too, to guarantee her safety. I don't know if she came under the pretense of collecting her things, but there was another reason she was there. She heard about the fly the size of a handsome man's head and knew that it had to be Etain, who had survived being turned into a puddle. She had consulted the druids and returned with a powerful magic. The next morning, Mir awoke, and he was alone. It wasn't just that Fuamnak and her don't-kill-Fuamnak entourage was gone, but for the first time in years, he hadn't been awakened by her because she wasn't there. She was gone. In the night, Fuamnak had surprised her and unleashed her spell, blowing her far away. But the wind didn't stop. Anytime over the next couple decades that fly girl Etain tried to land, the wind found her and blew her off the surface. So, because of this curse, it was a long 14 years. She got a brief break in there where Angus, remember Mir's foster son, caught her and put her in a box so she could rest some. He kept her with him at all times and enjoyed his second foster mom's company, but only until his first foster mom found him on his way to visit Mir one time. She spotted him, doubled back, and then released a spell at the box that caused it to fly from his side, fall to the ground, and shatter. So she was back on the wind, and this time there wasn't any help coming. She floated across Ireland, all but abandoning herself to her fate when she hit a chimney. It was in Ulster. It was in the time of King Krahur, one of his greatest warriors, Itar. Well, Itar's wife was sitting by the fireplace when the wind blew. She shrugged and took a drink from her goblet, but coughed when she felt a lump in her throat. And I'm assuming that at some point over the last 15 years, Etain was no longer the size of a handsome man's head, because Etar's wife swallowed her. Fomnak returned home, to her own house in her father's kingdom, grinning. For once, she didn't sense Etain's presence in the world. The girl was finally dead. She could rest. She bent low to light the lantern, and that's when she felt the iron against her neck. She froze. Where is she? The voice demanded. It was Angus, her foster son. Fomnak shook her head. She didn't know what the man was talking about. She felt the sword dig into her skin. I know it was you. You sent the wind. You blew her back into exile. Where is she? Flamnak allowed herself a small laugh. <laughs> dead. She's dead. She put up a good fight. But she's never coming back. She felt the sword leave her neck. And she grinned. She would die with that grin on her face. With one strike, her head fell to the ground. Angus wiped his blade. That one was for Etain. She couldn't be dead. No matter what, he would find her. She had survived being turned into a puddle and a fly. She could survive whatever Fuamnak had done. Angus, the foster son of Mir, tossed the lantern on the ground, and a fire roared to life. He sheathed his sword and walked out into the night a silhouette against the blaze of Fuamnak's house. He was going to do it. He was going to find Etain from Mir.
we'll see what happened to Etain, but that will be right after this. They say history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. But here it absolutely repeats itself. You see, at that time, there was another king, the High King of Ireland, Yohu. He called all the kings of Ireland to him, alongside his retainers and warriors, to levy taxes and tell them what they owed, and they said, No. No, Yohu said, sitting up, picking up his spear. Okay, uh, look, this is the first century, so I'm not sure if the phrase, don't shoot the messenger, has been coined yet, but if it hasn't, please, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just saying what they told me when I told them to come pay taxes, the messenger said, cowering in the throne room. Well, why don't they want to come pay me money so I can continue with my completely necessary ancient world lifestyle? The king asked, reclining on his gilded throne. The messenger said, they said they wouldn't listen to an unmarried king. Really, I just think they don't want to pay taxes. Married, huh? I'll show them married. I'll get married so hard they won't have any choice but to pay taxes, the king said, raising his fist to his face. He called his kingly dating service. His kingly dating service was, well, all the royal spies. Everyone undercover throughout Ireland got the same message. Scrap whatever boring state business you were on. Look around. Any beautiful woman? Report back. I like to think that he got several confusing reports from all around Ireland, saying that those were very vague orders, beauty was extremely subjective. Still, one guy, one guy was insistent. He found her. Her name was Etain. It probably wasn't Etain. It had been, what, 20 years since she had been swallowed in the form of a fly? Well, after that happened, Etar's wife became pregnant, and Etain was born again. She had a happy second childhood where, other than faint echoes of a king in a relentless wind, she remembered nothing of her previous life. Real quickly, there are about three different stories of Etain and they are loosely connected. There are some inconsistencies, though. For instance, even though Etain spends maybe 20 years as a human, and then another 15 as a fly, the story says that there were 1,012 years between her first and second births. Don't quite know how that works. And yeah, Etar's wife found that she was pregnant, she had a girl, her name was probably different, but I'm just going to keep calling her Etain. I have a bad track record of changing names mid-series with these Irish stories. Anyway, back to the story. Etain sat by the stream, about to slip in and wash her hair. She had everything laid out. It was a nice day, peaceful day. It was the day that her life was going to change. Like she had inklings of a past she couldn't quite grasp. She also had whispers of a future that would come into sharper relief before sinking back into the mists. Today, was the day that she met him. She was right, too. Not far from where she prepared, the king, Yohu, crouched with his servant in the bushes. Wow. That spy wasn't joking. She is stunning, the king said. Then he turned to his servant. What are you waiting for? Set forth to take her, as aversion actually says. You want me to kidnap her? The man said, swallowing hard. What? No! It's an honor to marry the king, but it's an honor she might not recognize right away. 
so I want you to forcibly restrain her until her will breaks, and yeah, that sounds a lot like kidnapping. Okay, new plan. I'll go it alone. <sighs> All right, Biggie, you can do this. He nodded to his servant. He was going in. I'm not up on ancient world pickup lines, but when the king walked up and said, quote, Shall I have an hour of dalliance with thee? It landed. It also probably helped that he was the high king of her homeland. She smiled and sat back, telling him to go on. He said that he loved her for the noble tales of her splendor, but even those didn't do her justice. Now that he saw her, he was truly in love with her, and he wanted to make her queen over all of Ireland. He begged her for her bride price, so that they might be married. When Etang gave him the bride price, seven bond slaves if you're wondering, she said she would be honored to marry him. But when she said that, a face flashed in her mind, one she didn't recognize but knew. The king agreed, and Etain shook the thought from her head. She accepted, and that day, she rode for Tara to be queen. Elil, one of the High King's brothers and not the father of the original Etain, was sick. He had been sick since Halloween, and no one, it seemed, could help him. Yeah, you're not sick, the physician said. Elil wept. That's what they kept saying. All the best physicians in first century Ireland, but none of them could help him. He was wasting away to nothing. It's... Because you're not sick? The physician reiterated. This is great news. There's nothing physically wrong with you. He met eyes with the physician. If nothing was wrong with him, then what was wrong with him? The physician stood, closed the door, and returned to the bed. Did the prince have anything he wanted to... tell the physician? Anything that might be weighing on him. Any powerful, unrequited feelings... A look of pain contorted Aaliyah's face. But the man shook his head. No, no feelings for him. He was a tough, manly warrior who was very sick. The doctor stood. Well, I'm not going to call it somaticizing because the field of psychology won't exist for like 1,700 years. But that's the issue. When you decide to get real with yourself and confront that very obvious psychological distress, you might start feeling better. Until then, the only one that can help you is you. Aaliyah nodded and had the doctor executed for his inability to help. Just kidding. Probably. Regardless, Aaliyah was in distress. But he knew exactly why. Etain. When he first saw her at the Feast of Samhain, he couldn't take his eyes off her. It was a development that angered his wife. And when he returned home to his own castle, he fell ill, wasting away for love but she was his brother's wife. It was forbidden. It was all the more difficult when he deteriorated further. And Yohu, the high king, demanded that his brother come to live with him so he could better look after the man. Now, Etain passed his room half a dozen times a day. He didn't know how much more he could take. Then, he heard a knock at the door. He froze. It was Etain. She smiled that smile that made his heart hurt and said that 
until Yoku returned. She was his new nurse. He was her new project, and she had sworn to her husband that she was going to do everything she could to get him well. Alil asked what happened to his brother. Oh, Etain said that he had gone off in his regular circuit of Ireland, keeping all the nobles in line, visiting all the castles, hearing any praise or grievances. She had stayed back, though, to take care of Alil. Crying silently to himself each moment they were together, Alil tried to keep himself from confessing his love for her. They spent the better part of each day together, Etain keeping him company, telling him stories, singing to him, helping him in any way that he needed it. Finally, Weeks later, Halil couldn't take it anymore. He swallowed hard. Etain, he said, I have something that I need to tell you. Oh, that you're in love with me? Etain said, not even looking up from her book. If Halil wasn't already laying down, he would have fallen over. What, she, she knew? Etain smiled politely and looked at him. Yeah, the doctors all said nothing was wrong with him. And... She caught the glances and the silent weeping that wasn't always all that silent. Yeah, she was just waiting for him to say it. But she was happy to help. What did he need? He said that he, he wished they could be together, but he knew that that was impossible. She said, no, it's not. He shot up. What? She nodded and put her hand on his leg. Yeah, he was the king's brother and she had vowed to help cure him. If that's what would save his life, she was pretty sure her husband wouldn't even mind. Just then, they heard a servant clipping along the stones outside the room. Etain pulled back her hand. Probably shouldn't hear, though. How about, what, say, 11.30 tonight? Down in the gardens, there was a nice, soft, secluded spot. He sat up in bed. Just to be clear, they were talking about... Being together. Notice his suggestive eyebrow waggle? She responded in kind, waggle and all, and said tonight. She would meet him out in the garden, and afterward, he would be feeling much better. She heard someone in the clearing. He was already there. Of course he was. She loved her husband and his family, and if this helped them, she could do it. She parted the leaves and stopped in front of Alil. You're not Alil, she said to Alil, standing in the clearing, stunned by her. And why would you say that, the man said, when he recovered himself, stepping toward her and starting to circle her. There was a man, at least she thought it was a man, a man whose name lurked on the edges of her memory. She didn't know him, but she felt him here. This wasn't Alil. This was him. Oh, very good. So you're not lost, the man said, when he saw her thinking. Etain. When he said that name, more memories swarmed in from the mists of time. Well, part memories, part feelings. A man, a witch, a love, a loss. I was your first husband, your first love. I was your true love, and you were mine. Then, if this was true, why didn't she remember it? He said, a witch named Fwamnak, but she was gone now. Nearer, in disguise, took Etain's hand. Didn't she see? 
He had orchestrated all of this. At the Feast of Samhain, he had touched Alil's mind, making the man fall in love with her. He knew she would eventually agree to be alone, and Alil was sleeping peacefully in his room, Mir having used his magic to knock him out right before the scheduled tryst. Now, with the king gone, she could do it. She could leave with him. They could be together. But she pulled her hand away. He, he might remember their life together, but it was all shadowy for her. It even existed. She was a swirling conflict of who she was and who she was supposed to be. He stepped forward. A kiss. A kiss was all it took. She would reawaken to herself, her true self. But she took another step back from him. No. The answer was no. She had a life here. A husband. She didn't know him. Goodbye, Mir. She rushed from the courtyard back to the castle. So let me get this straight, King Yohu said, as he stood in Alil's room. He pointed to his wife. You figured out that he was in love with you, and the only way to cure him was a secret tryst. Notice the suggestive eyebrow waggle. He turned to his brother. But on the night you were supposed to be with my wife, you fell asleep and didn't go. And when you awoke, you were feeling fine, no longer in love with my wife and no longer sick. Alil nodded. Also true. The king turned back to Etain. Okay. Etain said, but also, a mysterious fairy king had caused Alil to fall in love with her. And I... Just, you know, full disclosure, she and Alil were absolutely going to... You know. And you cured him. And you didn't even have to go through with it. Please, I'm the king. Don't call me back home early for trivial matters, like an affair between my brother and wife. Etain said that she thought he would take it well, but this was almost... too well? Also, there was still the matter of the mystical shape-shifting fairy king trying to break up their marriage. Yahoo said that he was the high king of ancient Ireland. When wasn't the fairy realm trying to mess with them? Alright, he had a chess game to get to. Chess game? Etain asked, trailing behind her husband toward the Great Hall. Oh, and don't you mean Fitchell, not chess? Who rolled his eyes? It, people think it could be an early precursor to chess, so just go with it. He said, yeah, about a year ago, this mysterious warrior showed up. Yoku invited him in, and it came up in conversation that he was good at chess. So the king asked him to play, but only if they played for stakes. He won 50 gray steeds and a road. A road? Etain asked. Yeah, a nice one too. It's probably the best road in all of Ireland. He built the best road in all of Ireland, Etain asked, a feeling of unease growing. Well, yeah, he and his fairy team, I snuck up. I can be sneaky when I want to. Fairy team, Etain stated. Really? All right, and here we are, the king said. Etain looked up and just before the door closed, she saw the form of the stranger scheduled to play chess with her husband in the Great Hall. She didn't recognize it, but she knew it. It was him, the man who called himself Meter, her supposed first husband. Hey, so don't be mad, but do you know what hustling is? King Yoku asked. 
grinning sheepishly, hat in hand. Etain was almost afraid to respond, but yes, like in pool or cards or something, where someone pretends to be terrible at something for a few rounds, and then when the opponent raises the stakes, thinking they're taking advantage of the newbie, the person turns on the skill and wipes the floor with them, winning the much larger bet. Yoku said that the fairy guy who stopped by, he might have been a chess hustler. Etain had to sit down. Oh, okay. What did he bet? The king said it didn't matter. Meter wouldn't get it. Trust him. Etain said it was pretty hard to trust him now. What did he bet? Yoku grimaced. A kiss and an embrace with his wife. So sorry. But they had a month. He just sent out word. In a month, every soldier in Ireland would be outside the house, guarding the place. They would be fine. And certainly, he felt that way. He felt that way when the armies were arrayed outside, when the heavy door was shut and barred, when his personal guard surrounded he and Etain in the throne room the day that Mir was supposed to arrive. He felt that way until Mir appeared behind him in the middle of a ring of his guards. The guards drew their bows on the fairy king. Yoku screamed for them to lower their weapons. Their king and queen were here too. Seriously, think this through. Mir stood, lost in Etain's eyes. He had come, just like he said he would. He didn't want violence. He had come for a kiss. But only if Etain wanted to see who she truly was. <laughs> Yoku laughed. Well, then Mir could leave, because his wife would never consent to... Wait, why was she going to him? Etain, why wouldn't I? She spat back at him as she walked closer to Mir. Mir had her husband's permission, after all, because he traded her in a game of chess. Yoku said, I mean, come on. He really thought he was going to win. What was she doing? She, she was humiliating him. Stop it. Etain nodded. There it was. That's what all this was about, then. Okay. She turned to Mir and kissed him. At that moment, inside, a wall came down, and memories came rushing back to her. Memories of her marriage to Mir, of the witch, Fwamnak, of the nearly twenty years spent as a fly, and of her own death and rebirth. She knew who she was. She was Etain. And she had returned. Hi, Mir said with a smile, and she hugged him close. Want to get out of here? Etain nodded. It was like the screaming King Yoku was muted as Mir held his wife close and they turned into smoke, going up through the smoke hole in the castle and into the sky. Up there, two swans took form, circling around the hill of Terra before taking off. Mir and Etain had found each other across time, across death, and they would never part again. Majesty, we... we found them. Kind of. King Yoku heard in his tent. Years. It had been years since he had been humiliated by Mir, who came into his own home and took his wife. At that moment, almost 20 years ago, the king who had traded away a kiss with his wife in a chess game suddenly cared about his marriage enough to dig up every fairy mound in Ireland, the places where they dwelled on this earth. This 
opened up a wider war with the fairy realms that lasted nine years. But now, they had done it. They had found the mound where the couple had fled after they humiliated the king. And according to reports, they had found Etain. Yeah, they had found her. 50 of her, to be exact. When they approached that particular fairy mound, they found a familiar face, Mir. He gave them a slow clap. Bravo. It only took them nearly two decades in a war with a magical kingdom. But sure, Etain would return to him. Yoku had the man surrounded and said, good. If he handed her over quickly, maybe Mir will be lucky enough to get a quick death. Mir gave a whistle. And from the forest marched Etain. And Etain. And Etain. Mir said that he and Etain shared a love so strong that he could find her when she was a fly. When she was a different person, even. Here, Etain stood among 49 illusions. All as they were on the day Etain left. If Yoku picked the right woman, she would return to him. If not, the consequences would be dire. Choose wisely. With that, Mir went up in smoke, leaving Yoku in the field with his wife and 49 copies. As Yoku walked the rows of women, he stopped and looked at an Etain. There was something... This woman was familiar. It, it felt right. He reached out and took her hand. It had form. She was real. The couple embraced, and immediately, the rest of the Etains went up in smoke. It was her. He took her hand, and together, they went home. Yoku was up getting a midnight snack. Things had been surprisingly good between him and Etain. He felt like they went through something horrible, but they came out on the other side, and they were stronger for it. How's she doing? Yoku heard from behind him. He jumped, but he realized he recognized the voice. He turned with a sneer. Mir. She was doing great, if you wanted to know. They were more in love than ever. They were committed, and not to salt the wound, but absolutely to salt the wound. They were like newlyweds. It was insane. Even in the dark, Yoku could see the grimace on Mir's face. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I bet you are, Yoku said. No, I, I am. I am. I wondered how you and Mess would get along. Glad to hear things are going well. Mess, Yoku asked. Do you, you mean Etain? No. No, I mean mess, Mir replied. The woman you chose. He said he chose Etain. That's why she was real. That's what the deal was. Mir continued. Yeah, and congrats on all the reconnecting you guys are doing. He could rest assured that he'd have a child soon. In fact, everything is A-OK -okay in that department for him, because when Etain returned home, she was with child. Yoku was angry about being tricked, but now he was nearly shaking with rage. An heir? He had an heir and didn't know it? And the boy had been a captive in the fairy realms for 20 years? He demanded to meet his son right now. Oh, uh, daughter, Mia corrected. And don't worry, you've already met her. Mia said that he had never met his child, and it had been 
20 years. How would he? Oh, what was he saying? Mess was his. He couldn't finish the sentence. Mir grinned. Well, he would leave Yoku to it. And in the future, don't mess with the fairy realms. Mir disappeared from the castle, never to return, leaving Yoku shocked, disgusted, and thoroughly defeated. sadly it for the story this week. Kind of an intense ending. Definitely don't pick fights with the fairy realms unless you want to be shamed and destroyed in kind of the worst way possible. Still, it's kind of an extremely harsh punishment. There are, of course, a few different versions of this. So if you wanted an ending where no one was happy, you can have that too. Because there's one more Yoku. In his rage, manages to recapture Etain, and they live not remotely happily ever after. Next week, we're back in the world of 1001 Nights, where we'll listen to Scheherazade tell stories for her life and learn how to ruin a wedding reception in three seconds. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a floating crocodile decoy, yes, a realistic, life-sized croc, you can get extra episodes and ad-free versions of the show that won't make you wet your pants in the pool or give everyone a heart attack, including you. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info. creature this week is the Troquehu Cueve from Chilean folklore. Now, we've touched on this mythology before, and in this world, there are witches that live in a cave who just, I guess, want to make everyone's life a lot worse. They kidnap children so that they can break their bones and feed them humans and turn them into captive monsters that have to do the witch's bidding. Once they're fully onboarded as horrifying monsters that eat human flesh and can freeze people with a sound, they're given a monster underneath them to do their bidding. That's this monster. The kid who was turned into a monster can't leave the witch's underwater cave. That's a feature, not a bug. The witch did that when she hobbled the child because she doesn't want the kid doing something pesky like running away and being free. Enter the Troquehu Cueve. It's kind of like an octopus, kind of like a cowhide blanket with teeth, but it can leave the cave. It swims out and waits just under the surface of lakes where young women go to draw water and... When the time is right, it leaps up, wraps up the young woman, and pulls her under. The cowhide blanket gets the blood, and the poor child in the cave gets the food. And the witch's little ecosystem hums along for another day. As we talked about when we talked about the Invunche, back in episode 125, the Invunche is the kid, you have to be an epic hero to confront the witch or the kid. Not so with the octopus blanket, though. After a hard day's work kidnapping and murdering people, the octopus blanket likes to take a little bit of me time and lay on the beach, warming up, relaxing, just soaking it all in. If you see a toothy cowhide on the beach, please don't lay on it, but just like drop a rock on it. Boom, you just saved countless lives. If you'd rather not take the easy way out, you can wait until it goes back under the water and dress yourself in the flesh of a local Chilean cactus and dive into the water, waiting for it to wrap you up only to realize that, ouch, you're impaling it. But really, just stop it on the beach. Don't show off.
That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. 